And now, the further adventures of Freeman and Geiger on film. Gary Sales, writer, producer, and the madman himself, actor Paul Ellers. How are you guys doing? Well, we are fine, thank you very much. Uh, very well, thank you. Very well. Good, good spirits. Beautiful spring day in New York here as we speak. That it is. Yeah, I heard you guys were suffering through those fifty-degree winters, those fifty-degree winter days this year. So. Hey, it saved my ass. I just, I just wrapped seventeen days of shooting on the new film law picture, uh, the girl on the train, and uh, having nicer weather did not hurt us. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, so it's all it's all good, and it's happy as a New Yorker. I'm happy to have a, some decent weather. I'm a little surprised, and I'm definitely curious about what it's going to mean for the summer. But uh, not having 57 inches of snow like we had the year before was not a big problem for me. <laughs> not at all. I think it was colder when we filmed Mad Men than it's been all all winter. I mean, it, it's well, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, look if you look at the uh, if you look on the DVD when we went and shot the feature. Which was supposed to be a featurette that turned into a feature about 30 years of Mad Men. That's on the new, uh, the new, uh, 30 year anniversary DVD release. When we went out to back, we went back to the original site where we shot, and we were standing around, <laughs> like, uh, you know, in two foot of snow as we stomped around there trying to find some of the old remnants of, uh, what the show, what was there when we shot the show. I mean, uh, I don't know if I'm going out of order here, but since I'm talking about it, uh, you know, while we were shooting it, we said, well, let's, you know, we went back there. They had raised the entire property. There was no more of anything we had known there. The, the, main, the main house was gone. All the cabins were gone. The, the trees were standing. And uh, we stomped around in the snow looking for any kind of a clue as to what was where and what. And uh, so the odd thing was that all around it, though, was all of these one and two acre six bedroom home estates had been built all around it and the only thing that had not been sold and, and moved on and, and built up was, was the property we shot Madman on so we, wow. we, we certainly wondered whether or not we left a, a mark greater than the just making of the film at least in, as far as the real estate community was concerned because we was, somehow was not able to develop that property since then well, that was a couple um, of things I was curious about uh, you know number one where, where did you shoot what was the location uh, this is in an area called Fish Cove, which is out in uh, east, sort of East Hampton, right, Paul? Yes. Yeah, we're out on Long Island, just before you get to the hot, the posh South Hampton and where you know and all that great stuff where all the big expensive places are. There was a little uh, inn there owned by a guy uh, who had just finished a stint as the financial advisor to the guru, little baby guru Maharaji. And he and his family had been traveling the world with the guys for a few years, amassing lots of capital and buying limousines and all things. And he had finished that work, and him and his wife went off with their five kids or whatever and bought this Fish Cove Inn, which they kept as a really nice little resort. They were, when we went out there to scout it, there was all kinds of teepees on the land, and they were running all kinds of alternative um you know, uh, weekend sessions for shamans and all this kind of cool yoga stuff. This is back in like 1980 when we were scouting, so it was pretty advanced for the time. Uh, eventually, all this is now normal mainstream stuff. But uh, back then, they were they were on the edge, 
of uh, alternative stuff. So that was, they, they were great. Took us a little bit, but we made a wonderful deal with them to house the entire crew and cast in the resort and use everything that was there for uh, shooting purposes, including we even hired their chef who cooked for us on a regular basis, and he was fantastic. And uh, it was a great little uh, all-in, you know, almost a theater event, you know, in that respect, because everybody came out on distant location, and we all shared the days and the nights together, mostly the nights, because we shot entirely nights. Um, and uh, it was a you know a great experience in those days. Very very so you a lot of fun. So you didn't shoot. You didn't actually shoot at um, during the day and then just give the faux night cover. You actually shot at night. We were too young and stupid. <laughs> I mean, we were just you know it was the early days of our careers. We weren't smart enough to come up with how to do a split day and shoot interior in the day and go out at night. We just went. We went out and well, it's a night picture. Everything takes between takes place between dusk and dawn. Great, we'll shoot all night long. So we just got into a night schedule, which to some degree sometimes is actually when you're doing it as long as that, you know, for five weeks or whatever, it, you know, everybody gets into it after the fifth week and it, it, it works. You know, I don't think I can do that again now. You know, it just it's just easier on people to try to do splits. Uh, you know, we'd sh- we would go and shoot interiors during the day and then come out after the sun went down, shoot the exteriors and go back and forth. But sometimes it's useful to get into a night thing just for the biorhythms of everybody and just stay in it. Because flipping back and forth, not everybody turns around that quickly. So it's, uh, it, it's sometimes helpful to, uh, to do it in blocks. But uh, in this case, uh, no, we just went hard at it, and uh, that was how it went. And it was, uh, you know, back in those days, it was the typical New York fall and winter, and it got colder sooner. In fact, we weren't really supposed to shoot out on Long Island. The original location was upstate in the mountains, but as we got closer to filming, it was getting a little cooler, and we, you know, nothing went exactly on schedule when we were raising Does the money. No, well, no, a day into a day or two here and there, you get, you know, you don't yeah. get it all. And um, you know, by the time we got all the money put in position, it was late August. So okay. that by the time we got really into casting and doing everything, we were in mid-September. We're starting to get a little cool. Temperatures are dropping under 30 every night upstate, so we started hunting for another location that would be closer and warmer, and that led us to Fish Coven and Long Island, um, which turned out to be great, great for us in, uh, for what it was. I mean, what we lacked there was a real mountainy thing. We would have had a little more mountainous stuff out uh, upstate. But in a night-for-night picture, you know, it's not so easy to tell where the mountains end and the flatland begins anyway, so it, it turned out to be okay. You know, the, the funny thing is, the other thing I was thinking about when I watched the movie, um, and, and this is as a filmmaker myself, the, at the time you made this film, you, this was basically, you know, the second Halloween movie had just come out, you had the second Friday the 13th movie had just come out, you had movies like Evil Dead, you had your movie, you had The Burning, which was another, you know, you know camp counselor type movie out there where they get killed by a madman. How did, well, how did, Burning how did is a special case. Because the burning, actually, the story behind, there's a story attached to that, and that's that as we were casting in September of 80, um, it, we, um, we started getting responses from the, cam, the, the, the cast that was coming in saying, gee, this is very familiar. I think I read for something like this a couple weeks ago. And that went on for a few days, and then one girl came in and said, you know, this scene that I'm reading here, my boyfriend is working on a movie up in Buffalo right now, 
And I'll tell you, this is almost exactly the same actions as that scene. I'm sure that it's like the same legend. Because wow. we never really let... We, Joey, the late Joe Giannone Jr., who was the screenwriter, I, wrote the, I co-wrote the story with him, and he wrote the screenplay, and he directed. He and I never wanted to let go of the name of the legend, which was something that came from me from my childhood days up in the Catskills. There was the very well-known or somewhat known legend of the Cropsey. And the Cropsey was, uh, you know, being told all across upstate New York and even down in, in the city in Staten Island area. It was one of these kind of legends that everybody knew. And so we were going to make the Cropsey legend, but we weren't going to put it up front. We were going to wait till we were done and then, you know, use that as a title thing. Uh, that's why we called the movie The Legend Lives. Originally, it was the original title of the, of the movie that we were working on. Well, as we're going through this stage of casting, and these people are saying this is sounding familiar, finally we get this one girl, like I say, that says, my boyfriend's doing this up in Buffalo. So our production manager at the time, uh, the late Mark Silverman, who was also the production manager on Blood Simple, the uh, first Coen Brothers movie, yep. he, knew the, he knew the people upstate. So he quickly got on the phone. Those days we had no email, remember. <laughs> we were a, a backward bunch, to be sure. And uh, we managed to get what was the most advanced form of communication that those days. We got it FedEx down to us. And um, we got the script the next day. Joey and I read it and said, oh, my God, they're doing the Cropsey Legend. And they were like five weeks ahead of us. So we both looked at each other, and this was like a Friday, and we said, gee, uh, we don't know what to do. Uh, we can't really make the same thing. We felt like that would be odd coming to the market with the same name and the same stuff, and that they would be ahead of us. So we basically put everybody on a hold for the weekend, and he and I sat around trying to figure out how to handle it, and we went to some bar that night, and we literally read the script and rewrote the script to wow. step away from what was originally the Cropsey and uh, recreated uh, and revised it to, to become what has become Mad Men. And, uh, what, what are the odds? I mean, what, are the odds? what are the odds that you would be filming the, you know, almost an identical feature you know, that two different filmmaking groups would, would just both decide to use that legend within a few weeks of each other and start filming? It's, it's you know, it's pretty cuckoo. <laughs> but leave it, leave it, look, this was, uh, you know, uh, another pair, another set of Jewish producers, young Jewish boys who had probably done the Catskill Mountain tour because those producers of the burning, as you well know, were Bob and Harvey Weinstein, of later to be Miramax fame. Right. That was their first picture. So they probably knew the same legend we did. And uh, it was, you know, it was just one of those things. And, and yes, the odds are ridiculous. And But when you're making movies, I find that when you're trying to grab the universe by the throat and wrestle it to the ground to suit your purposes, that's when it decides to kind of struggle away from you and fight back. <laughs> you know, and it's not willing to give in to your schedules, your timing, your weather requests, your actor requests or anything else. And it throws back at you what it wants to. So that was one of the things it threw back at us. And you just respond, you know. Uh, in producing films or any other endeavor where you're trying to organize the things to suit your own purposes, you just simply have to uh, respond to it when it doesn't work your, go your way. So that's how we responded. We sat down, we rewrote the script, we came up with a new plan. I had been hunting for music for the script, and I had been listening to Host the Planets, 
uh, and I had isolated uh, the, the one tone poem on the planet Mars, which I was literally lifting, going planning to lift theme, thematic material from for the synthesizer score. So when we came up with it, you know, we named the character. I said, well, we'll you know, let's take him to Madman and we'll call him Mars with a Z. So that's how we ended up with the name Mars in the end. Uh, you know, Joseph Mars essentially was the was the guy, but we we gave him the the, uh, the name Mars at, at the end because it came from that. And uh, and we just you know when you're making a movie, it's a relentless experience. Once you pull that trigger and you're moving in pre-production every day toward shooting, uh, you think quick. You come up with answers. You know, if you had time to ruminate, you'd be dicking around with it for uh, three weeks. And but when you're in the middle of making a picture, you just you answer you get it answered in three minutes. And so you know we came up with another way of doing it. We had called our investor after we we had one guy backing the picture, and we called him up on the phone and said, "This is our this is our situation uh, that's come up." And we told him about the other company, and we said, "This is our you know and we want to let you know that this is happening. And if you have any questions about it and you doubts, we can pull the plug now." But this is our solution, and we think we'll be fine with it. And he decided to go with us, thank goodness. And so we just put everybody back into, you know, shoot mode as of the, at the end of the weekend and uh, ran hell-bent for leather to get it done and pushed the opening date a couple of weeks to accommodate the change because we had a, also at the same time we were hunting. We hadn't found Fish Cove yet. So we uh, had location scout. I took out a map one day, and I drew uh, a radius of 50 miles from the center of Manhattan, and I said, find it. <laughs> <laughs> and they just went out, you know, and these days this kind of stuff would be a lot easier. You could probably Google map your way to half of the stuff. In those days, you sent a guy out, and maybe two guys, maybe three, and they went in different directions with their cameras, or they got on the phone with real estate agents, or they looked at maps, and they, they did all their hunting, and they did it all on foot, you know, Lewis and Clark style. And then they'd come back and report and bring you pictures, and you'd develop them, and you'd look at them, and, you know, so... But we did what we had to do, and uh, here we are today. Well, I have a question for Paul. Yes, sir. Paul, now, how did you get involved in this film? I mean, I'm just curious as to, um, basically what I'm going to ask you is the, how you got it and your experience playing the madman. Okay. Um, I had, first of all, my background was I had gone to School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, in the late 60s and 70s, I, I uh, studied illustration there and, and art and design, and uh, then switched over to film, and my degree is in filmmaking, but it's something I really did not pursue. It just, fate just took me in the direction of doing more painting and illustration. Right. Uh, that's where the work wa was, and that's what I was doing at the time. Um, turns out, Joey and Gary, we all had like mutual friends at the time, and uh, my friend Jim, who had a farm, my friend Jim Grillo had a farm, and I remember one weekend Joe Giannone was out there, and I had met him, and you know, and I had heard he was working on a project, and uh, we talked a bit about horror because I, from when I was a little kid, I was, you know, I pretty much every Saturday morning uh, throughout the 50s, you know, we would have an 11 o'clock at the RKO Keith in uh, Richmond Hill, Queens, they would have a, horror, a different horror film. So so I grew up pretty much in all the mid and late 50s into the 60s, all the horror movies that had come out. I pretty much saw them all in the theater, usually by myself, which was interesting. But So I had, I had that horror background, and I loved horror movies. And uh, so Joey was talking to me a bit about 
thoughts I had about horror, what I thought was frightening, what wasn't. And we talked, you know, for a whole night about that. And then time went on, and I hadn't heard back from him about anything. I didn't expect to hear from back from him on anything. And I know they were trying to keep the cost down on whatever they had to do with the film. And naturally, when you need somebody cheap, get me. So they called <laughs> me to come in to, to work on the one sheet, the poster for the film. And we had done a number of designs for the one sheet. And I think at that time, Gary and Joey had been to a number of people trying to cast for the Madman character. And I was, you know, I was, you know, reasonably big. And I, I have a martial arts background, and I, I do weapons work and training and all that, so I can swing an axe as good as the next guy. And uh, so I was, I was talking to the two of them in their office in the city, and we were talking about, you know, the character of Madman. I, I was kind of showing how I would illustrate him on the poster and kind of get in a position and this whole thing. I liked the thing. And they kind of turned to each other, and they said, you know, Paul, what are you doing for the next two months? And I went, oh, my God, you're not serious. And they were. They, you know, they gave me a shot at playing the character, and uh, I jumped at it. I said, oh, oh I must do this. I just have to. So, oh, yes. So that's what happened, and that's kind of how I got it. And uh, so I, I'll you know, in on that. I mean, we were looking at all kinds of big seven-foot dudes, you know, but we couldn't find. Nobody had what we what we would have to call resonance. You know, nobody really brought the the sense of what it meant to be a horror film monster. Right. And, uh, that was like something we just, Joey and I just kept looking at each other and saying, yeah, he, he's big, but what, what can he bring to it beyond the bigness? And, you know, we kept talking, and I, and I'm, you know, and I just looked at Joey one day and said, you know, <laughs> Paul's big. <laughs> Paul has feeling for this, you know. This would be the right person who would really bring something to the party, and, and, uh, and that's exactly what he did. I mean, it just elevated the character right away. You know, Fantastic. And it made it more than just simply a... Uh, a gruesome-looking guy running around the woods. So, well, the, other, the other thing too is that you know, having having gotten this wonderful opportunity and 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 leaving my archer jobs at the time, and everybody waving goodbye, goodbye. We hope you come back. And also, but so I went out and did this, and I thought, you know, this could be my one and only shot at this. Exactly. You know? So so I didn't care what Gary or Joey asked me to do. You know, so like break through this door, do that, do this, do that, do that. So I I with great gusto tried to carry out every every kill and everything that I had to do on screen like I said th thinking it may be my last you know so so I hope that came through on, on screen you know I, I, you know I, I like to think I didn't just walk through it actually he kind of lumbered through it but, yeah but yeah so that's kind of where I came from with it. lumbered and grunted and grunted and grunted indeed yeah I, you know it, it it always fascinated me, you know, with Joseph, because I like so much doing accents and different voices, you know. And there he has me going, rawr, rawr, rawr. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, what was I going to do, sneak up on someone and go, oh, pardon me, I do have this axe, you know, and it is late. <laughs> you know, that really wouldn't work. You know, like Shakespearean slasher, I don't think they really... Well, I don't know. Maybe that's a nice idea, but we'll see. I don't know. I'm always surprised we didn't get a promo out of, like, uh, Rolades or Tums or something like that. As a, something, right? With that as a sound effect for stomach problem. and more. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Know, I, the think, I actually think the horror film really needs a very articulate, upscale, you know, homicidal maniac. <laughs> well, look, we, hey, Hannibal Lecter. I, you know, I just thought of that. When, you, when I said it, I just thought about that. 
Right. Yeah. You also have a um, sort of uh, American uh, psycho. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, but he, doesn't need, he does need, like, the Terry Tune type accent. Yeah, yes, sir. Welcome. Yes, indeed, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> soup says a lot of blood when I have it. You know, you know Madman Mad Man lives in the in the zone of the more, you know, um, of, of I know. the grander tales of, of the woods and, the, you know, the backwoods and the back, which comes at you from the dark. And, um, you know, almost more of a classical kind of monster. I mean, those other ones are very cool um, modern 20th century monsters, and Madman is more of a an age-old monster that you could read. Right, right why, we're, why we're afraid of the dark. You know, because yeah, once he starts rocking and rolling and does his thing, things happen very quickly. You know, it really does. I mean, uh, you don't last long in that movie. <laughs> no, it's in, hey, it takes place in one night. I mean, literally yeah. dust gone. Yeah. I mean, not the, the title or anything. That question, the question that I want to ask you guys, um, you know, there's always been horror film festivals. I mean, probably not as big as it is now, but Paul, I've been going on some YouTube and I've been watching you out at some of these horror conventions for Madman. Mm-hmm. And when did it start really getting big? I mean, obviously it's just like 30, 30 some years later, but when did it start to when did it start to get really? I should say. I will tell, I will tell you what happened. It's very interesting. We had before Joey passed away. We had a showing out on Long Island at the Cinema Arts Center, and uh, we had a showing there, and um, we, we were not sure how that was going to roll, okay? And uh, Joey and I, at the time, were amazed how many people showed up. I mean, we had done the film. It did its run. It was in theaters. People went to see it. It eventually came out on VHS and so forth and so on, but, but there was no gauge... I never had any kind of a gauge of, 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 of how well the film was received later on or how it affected people. And I, I always wanted to know that. You know, I'll right. say something about that in a minute. But when we showed it in the Cinema Art Center, I mean, we had a packed house. And for the first time in my life, I had young people coming up to me going, you know, there's a scene where you do this and that and you raise the thing. How many times did you have to hit him with the... And I'm like, What? <laughs> you know, and, and, and like they knew dialogue and they knew scenes and it was like I'm like these people actually have seen this movie over and over again and they really love it and you know it amazed me and Joey and, and we were so blown away by this and then what started happening is we started going online and starting to read reviews and you know, I remember I was making a lot of copies of these and mailing these to Joe of the various you know Sometimes not fabulous reviews, but, you know, a lot of them really, really very decent, very good reviews. And, you know, and I always felt that. I mean, I try to look at it objectively from my, my knowledge of other horror films throughout my life. And, you know, and, you know, we are not, it is not a bad movie. I mean, people like, some people like to say that. And I always say, all right, you know, get a camera and go make one. Amen, amen. I say that all the time in my reviews. Thank you. Yeah, come on. You you want to do better? Do better. Okay. And and for what we had, and as limited as it was, and with the talents of of Gary and Joey and what everybody brought to this, you know, it does. It holds up. It's it's shot beautifully. It's it's eerie. The the electronic music is great. I mean, you got to get that score released there, Gary. I mean, the music is great. All that works great. And and. What you were asking about, the timing, and this is what happened for me. I, in 2006, 
I'm working at home. I have an art studio at home, and that's what I've been doing the last several years is designing. I do some design work and so forth and, and, and writing. And uh, I'm home, and I get a phone call. And the guy says, uh, do I have on the phone the real Madman Mars from the movie? And I went, uh, yes, sir. Who's this? <laughs> and they went on to explain that they were from this uh, Dead Pit radio show and that they would like very much to interview me on the phone. And I was like, whoa. And somebody somehow, I guess today it's easy to do, but somebody got my home phone number. And I started getting these calls. And this was 2006. And from this huge dead period of nothing, suddenly I get calls. And all these things started happening. And and uh, Icons of Fright, they did, they did a piece on that. They came out to my house with... Uh, photographers and four guys and we sat around the dining room table had a real big interview did a lot of photographs of my house and me and so forth and so forth. and it was wonderful it was like this sudden you know back from the dead kind of thing that happened and i said my god and here's the thing to me that was the most just just made my heart sing with this because when we did the film i was 30 years old okay and my friends that came to see it, who were also horror fans and, you know, like the genre movies, they all went to see the film. They were all 30s, whatever year, you know, and we talked about it later on, and they were very analytical about the story and so forth and so on, and talked about it like, like adults. Right. But I wanted to know what kids thought. Right. And there was no way I could know what kids thought at that time, because I wanted to know, do Little kids, 8, 9, 10, 12-year-old kids get the same feeling seeing Mad Men that I had when I saw Horror Dracula and things like that. Did this scare kids? And this, I just never knew. I never knew until they started calling me into the radio interviews. And, and, and the guys came to my house, and they were all here at the house, and they were, like, staring at me. And we met first in a, in a hamburger restaurant in Huntington, New York. And, and I, they're sitting there having the hamburgers, and they bought me lunch, you know, and they're staring at me, and I'm going, what's what? <laughs> and they go, we can't believe we're sitting here having a hamburger with Mad Men. <laughs> wow. And I said, guys, thank you. That's so cool. And I remember one, one funny thing is if, after we had a day in the house here of you know, writing the interview and so forth, I, I remember I had, I had an axe or a broom. I'd like to think it was an axe or a broom near the front door, and it was nighttime at that time. And the guys had to back up my driveway on the gravel driveway to leave, and the car's packed with, like, five guys, you know. And they had me in the headlights for a minute, and I grabbed the axe, and I start walking towards the car like I do in the film when I'm backlit. <laughs> and I hear these guys, these adults, screaming in the car. And, and, and they open the windows, and the guy said, he's like, he's like, oh, my God, man. He said, that was my greatest nightmare fear as a kid. <laughs> that, that, that madman would be walking towards my father's car. Wow. And he said, thank you, thank you, man. And it just, it, it was like, just so, ah, it was just so inspiring for me when I found out. It, it did scare kids. It did it. It scared them. Yeah. And, uh, and then doing shows, I got invited to, I used to do Choa Theater as a collector. Kevin Clements, Choa Theater in New Jersey. I used to do it as a collector. I go and I collected art, comic art sculptural art, uh, resin kits, things like that. I've always enjoyed that stuff. And uh, Kevin knew Madman. He knew the movie. And, and a lot of the guys who worked his show, I'm going to switch phones, guys. This one is dying. Hold on a second now. 
Okay. And during that point, Hello? one second, wait for a minute, guys. I'll be right back. Paul, we'll keep talking. All right. Yes, okay. okay. So, okay, I'll be right back. okay, Gary, gotcha. Um, I'm on the other phone now. Um, so, so Kevin says to me, you know, he says, why don't you do the show? Because I used to go as a friend. I'd go and buy stuff. He said, why don't you do the show? I said, why? I said, five people have seen this movie. Yeah. You know, this is what he started telling me in the 2000s before the kids from the radio, from, from before that all started. He used to say, why don't you do the show, man? You, you have fans. I said, nah, what? Like I said, five or six people? What? He said, no, man, do the show. So he set, me up to, he set me up to do the first show in 2006 on Halloween. And I remember I had no stuff prepared. I wasn't ready. I, you know, I, this was not my living. So many people, God bless them, people who were, like, iconic in a lot of movies, it really helps them out. They do the shows, you know, yeah. they sell merchandise. It's great for them, okay? It, it keeps their legends alive, which is, which is lovely to see. Right. But I didn't have any stuff. So my wife and I went nuts. She's an artist, too, my wife, Eddie. So we, we, we went around. We had pictures blown up. I had posters made. I had all this crazy stuff made to lay out on the table because I wanted to be prepped for it. And it was... It was uh, it was an amazing thing to have people like you know walk up to you and just recount terror stories of when they were little. One guy said to me, when we were growing up, there was a five dollar bet that you would not go out in the dark. This is his cousins and his brothers and stuff. You would not go out in the dark near the woods, yell out the name Madman Mars as loud as you can, and stand there for five minutes you would get five bucks. And nobody ever collected. <laughs> nobody ever did it. They freaked out. They, you know? <laughs> and, and it's, uh, you know, so, so for me, it was glorious finding out, you know, you think of yourself, you know, here I'm doing my art, my design work and all that, and, you know, here I am, you know, playing a monster in a movie, and uh, which is like very different than, I don't want to say that. I was going to say it's very different than, you know, I'd like to think I'm a little funny, but, but you know, but, you know, I, I'm sorry I'm not getting on the phone going, no. I always wanted to play a monster. <laughs> I think I did real good, don't you? You know, I mean, <laughs> if that happened, it would be like, oh, my God, man, who is this guy? I can see why they hired him. Oh, my God. But, no, getting back to that, it just, it has tickled me every time I hear someone talk about how it scared them when they were little. And now, you know, I, I hear from people overseas uh, who saw it. Um, you know, it's just been, it's been this, delightful kind of reawakening and understanding of, of what effect it had on people when they were children. And right. I think that's the thing. I think I was gauging it, as I said, by what my friends thought. And we right. were all filmmakers and stuff. It was hard to... Sometimes I thought they were just being courteous to me, you know, and that kind of stuff. But but it's the kids I wanted to hear from. And there you go. It it, it, it worked for kids. It scared them. Yeah. And that, that for me was... That was, that was worth everything, man. That was the coolest part. Yeah, when I was watching the the YouTube videos, I can see the, the the gleam in your eye. I can see how you know something that's made that long ago. It's so. I mean, I can just see how, just by what you told us, how your life was changed in two thousand six. Yeah, it really was. It really was. It really. Was. I, you know, I, you know, it, it, it's almost like Joey. I think it's, it had said to me near the end. You know, he surprisingly passed on, but he said to me, "Who knew? Who knew this? We didn't know this." You know, we didn't know about it. No one was contacting us. No one, you know, it just, they just weren't, you know. And uh, and unfortunately, 
he passed away just about at that time. He never got to see any of this. Wow. I mean, from wherever he is, and I do believe he's he's somewhere. I hope uh, where he can look down on this or or up either way. <laughs> but right. but uh, you know, I mean, you know, he missed. He kind of missed the physical part of being here and going through this, which I know he would have loved. You know, because it's the one film, and it's funny because, in a sense, maybe, maybe, you know, Gary and Joey both, in a sense, were almost reluctant, perhaps, to to maybe having to do a, a, a horror film. Okay, I, I think, like many artists, I think they felt that, you know, to make the money, as many do, make the horror film, or make make the the uh, some kind of film that would have a lot of popularity, and from that, you know get enough money in your budget to really do something very serious. So I think, you know, they kind of started with that, pick the horror genre. I mean, they, they could have done that. They could have an ex- exploitation movie, I think, but they chose Thank Goodness Horror. And, uh, and yeah, and, and interesting for Joey to be known for forever as uh, that's, that's his little piece of filmmaking, man. And, uh, you know, but it does, getting back, it does hold up. And I'll watch it, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll watch it with people seeing it for the first time. And Scott, you say you've seen it just recently for the first time? No, Jeff did. I Jeff, I, Jeff, yep. Jeff saw it recently. Okay, yep. I did. I, I have to tell you for for, and I, I assume it was a fairly limited budget. Yes, for the thing that 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 your camera work and the cinematography were top notch. Well, um, you know, I think you know Gary can tell you more about that. Um, it was. I mean, I've seen so many films of that period or a few years prior. Where it's just god awful, and I mean, it looks like somebody shot stuff in Super 8. You know, it's like, please, you know, with no lighting, no. This. That's why I take it very personally when people attack us on that level. You know, and they're wrong. They're just wrong. Okay. Well, I'll tell you something. Someone who's who I know down here in South Florida, who's a, a fairly well-established filmmaker, and uh, and he said this to me, and it's so true. And and this is really what you, you got to aim that criticism at. And they said, if you you know. Just having made a feature film, just mm-hmm. having done it to completion, mm-hmm. is something to be incredibly proud of. Absolutely. So many people start it and can't finish it for whatever reason or the other, exactly. and, and just having really done it is is an, is really something to tip your hat at and take pride in. Right, absolutely true, so true. And Gary, are you back? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was to that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> who, who knew that uh, Madman Mars was was so eloquent and and, and long spoken? He's articulate beyond the pale. There we go, <laughs> Gary. The guys were talking about the cinematography and how good it was. I thought maybe you could chime in on that a bit about Jim. Well, you know, Joey and I hunted as we did for everything else. I mean, every picture. If you if you start out and new, either you're going into it with a cadre of buddies that you're working on things with together, or you're reaching out into the industry to find people that you've never worked with before in order to put together your crew. I mean, I just went through that in the last few months with the girl on the train. I mean, yeah, there's all the people you know and love that you'd like to have on, and then there's all of the reasons why you can't get them at that particular time and date because they're either booked on something else or your current budget is not enough to really sustain them, or you're no longer really friends because the last picture destroyed it, <laughs> and, you know, whatever the thing may be. So when we went to make Mad Men, you know, I was coming from an area where I had done a bunch of things, um, working on low-budget R-rated sex comedy back in the day and a um, couple of X 
X-rated porn things to cut my teeth and get experience. You know, both of us who were in film school, and anyone who's gone to film school and come out into the industry will tell you that film school gives you uh, some skeletal structure to understand equipment and history and, and criticism and things like that. But the industry is the industry, and it's its own world. And um, so if you want to work in the business, you know, you get out in the business and you start to work. And uh, you meet people, and one thing leads to another, and that's how you keep working. So we went out hunting. You know, we needed a DP of a higher quality than we had been working with in the things we were doing. And we just started looking at a lot of different pictures, a lot of horror, a lot of action, to see who might fit the bill. And one guy's work we liked a lot, uh, who'd done things for Abel Ferrara, the, the great Abel Ferrara, who you probably know, the bad lieutenant and uh, driller killer and... Uh, Liz 45 and things like that back from the day. Right. And uh, he wasn't doing horror, Abel, but he was doing more action and, and edgy stuff like that. And there was a, we really liked the work on Liz 45 and a couple of things like that. And we tracked down the DP. His name was Jimmy Lemo. Uh, he was, of course, a union guy, so that's what he reads as James Momel on the screen because he, he needed to uh, not put his name up front. But, he, you know, he was a really good cinematographer, well-versed in 35, had done a lot. He has directed also since a number of action pictures and, and B stuff. And he was the right, he was the guy that we felt had the, the qualities that would give us a look that we thought would elevate us. You know, and of course, you know, you, you, you're chasing around with your budget there, trying to make a, dis, a decision. And now this is long before digital ever popped its head into the world of possibility for a, uh, for a television, you know, for a theatrical motion picture. So, you know, the choices back then were either 16 or 35. I mean, video didn't even exist for all intents and purposes. I mean, uh, 1980, I mean, you know, VHS was still in the war with beta. That's, that's how old it was. And uh, so... His stuff was just really exceptional. He came in, we spoke, uh, we got along. He was willing to work the, the rate that we had. And uh, so we brought him on. And, uh, you know, he, he did a bang-up job of uh, elevating. We also made the decision to go 35. It was a big decision because it cost us quite a bit more than 16. But when we felt when we went to the marketplace, it would give us a distinction above a lot of the other pictures that were there, you know, and give us, make us more, look more like pros, okay? And, and also, there were costs down the line. You shoot 16, the next thing you know, you get a distributor, there's another $25,000 cost to bump it up anyway. Right. So we figured we would just take it on and come there delivering what they would really want in the end, no matter what, and separate ourselves from anybody who was, you know, slightly lower in the world. So it was a sort of a business decision, as well as a quality decision. Shooting at night, you get a little more stop out of 35 than 16. So that was useful in the, in the day. And then Jimmy applied what has now become the, you know, the apparently, and we, we learned this lesson the hard way when, in releasing the 30-year uh, anniversary DVD, the signature blue tint to, <laughs> to the night look. Uh, it has that really deep blue... I don't know, is it, I mean, is it deep blue? It's just got that blue wash that, that kind of says, hey, this is night. And um, we, we, we actually timed it a little bit warmer when we did the DVD release for the 30-year anniversary uh, release. And I, we got a lot of shit from a lot of fans that said, wait, what happened to the blue? Because we warmed it up a little bit. It made it a little more, natu you know, a little more natural. 
and we caught some flack for it. So when we, we go when we go to Blu-ray, I'll I'll, I'll make sure the blue goes back uh, nice. and make everybody happy along those lines. But Jimmy was great, and uh, you know he had um, great sense of composition, knew what he was doing. You know, we didn't have to think about well, we're doing the right kind of this or that. He understood the lab, so. It was a it was a good experience, and like I say, he and a lot of other people, everybody was found along the way. I mean, uh, Gary, I always wanted to ask you this because Gary and I both Gary his whole life is music, really, and I've been collecting soundtracks since I was nine. I pretty much draw to soundtrack music, but Gary, how did you get Stephen with this, and 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 what was your what was your guidelines with with how he wrote the electronic score? Well, I had been myself an electronic musician, and, yep. uh, and I had been studying that before I switched over. I was a music composition major, and before I switched over to, to get it to, to combine that with my love of drama and film and everything else, I was doing a lot of electronic music in the earliest days, before synthesizers really, the only right. synthesizers that existed were Buchlas and Moogs and Arts. Mm -hmm. There was no... Prophet 5, there was no DX7, there was none of the performance synths that came out in the late mm -hmm. 70s, early 80s, which changed the face of modern music. So right. I was working with computer, you know, mainframe computers, you know, spending three weeks to do a 30-second piece with punch cards. And I had become well-versed with a lot of the electronic musicians in town, and, um, you know, it was, a, it was a new and budding art form. And uh, I just hunted through some of the guys I had met at some of the uh, New York haunts for this kind of stuff, like the kitchen downtown in Soho and places where people were doing this. And I ran across Stephen through, uh, you know, some connections from different people. And he had a little three-piece kind of synthesis art band, and they would go out and do, you know, they wouldn't go out with interest instruments. They went out with, you know, with synthesizers and did live performances and he was getting involved in all kinds of stuff. You know, he went on after us to do Reading Rainbow, and he ended up winning uh, an Emmy for that. And uh, wow. tons of these uh, student little, you know, Reading Rainbow uh, episodes. Now he's, uh, you know, a well-known, preeminent uh, reason uh, and uh, logic uh, logic uh, guru that everybody goes to. And he has a website for teaching all that kind of stuff, and he does a lot of uh, electronic music for all kinds of people, uh, all kinds of shows and of every of every nature. But there were only a few people I could have gone to in the day there um, that would have understood what I was looking for, because uh, a lot of guys just I didn't want them to go and make me like don't go use the synthesizer to make regular music for me. Uh, I wanted electronic sounds. I wanted electronic music that, that didn't rely on the concept of, well, we're trying to emulate a piano, we're trying to emulate a horn. Uh, it, it wasn't important to me. It was more important that you emulate, you get an atmosphere. Find an atmosphere. I don't care if it sounds like a violin. I don't care what you go for there. Just, you know, you do it with the synthesis to get us something that is unique to the ear. And uh, I think he achieved that, actually. I think he really did. And we have yet to release the soundtrack album on it, and it will happen at, at some point. As, as we move along, it will definitely happen where we'll put out the Silver soundtrack in, in the right way. I mean, there are a couple of points in the, in the you know, there's some really great uh, moments of, of synthesis there. My, one of my favorite themes is, is when Mad Man is coming down the tree. And, uh, oh, I love that piece, actually. <laughs> Yeah, there's just this descending 
sound that just goes so well, and it's just creepy, and it has, it has almost, you know, it almost throws back to the 40s, uh, you know, creepy pictures that were being made, you know, the, the funky stuff that was being made. Like the Wolfman and things like that, yeah. Yeah, it had that kind of a quality to it, but it really fit that really well. And of course, I always liked the drum beat that comes at the end there when we do what we call the high noon walk. Yeah. With my <laughs> shotgun across the, uh, across the uh, courtyard to go back to see who was in the uh, main house and right. check out the screams, and there's that boom, boom. Right. And it just slowly, you know, there, you know, and keeps you going. And then it, whenever there's a big uh, hit of any kind, Stephen just created a cacophony of wildness that went on that I don't think people had ever heard in those days. It was brand new to them. Now, you know, they, they're more used to electronic music. But even so, this really tried to stay electronic and not become, you know, music music all the time, which I think was a, a, a good pick. And, uh, I, I, I'm in touch with him now and then. I actually see him at certain events together, and uh, you know, he might maybe he'll even jump in and do the remake with us. We'll see how things work along those lines. Wow. Well, um, well, a lifelong fan of Tamita here, so uh, so I knew electronic music back in the '70s too, and that was that's not back then. You know, you are so right, Gary. That is not a an undertaking for the faint of heart back then. You know, that was you know just looking at the size of the of the units you guys had to use and the and the technology that was available just to create those sounds was just daunting. Um, yeah, it was. It's not, it was today, it's not today like plugging a mini keyboard like in your computer. very few things on the shelf. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, that you could reach out to. But Steve, had a, he, had a, he had a synthesizer or two in his studio. And uh, I would go in with him. I would send him, not send him, but I would go down there with tape clips of things that I would create at home on my keyboard. And, and, and I would bring it into him, and then he would then put it through his system and regurgitated out the other end with his tweak to it. So, uh, you know, I, I'm listed on the, and the credits as music supervisor, and that was mostly because I was there, you know, just working themes with him all the time and then letting him loose to, to turn it into what he had. So that was always interesting. Uh, along. And I, and I was recording all of the little background actual uh, song stuff that was hiding back there. I was doing that separately and recording those and, and putting them in. But it was an interesting experience. And... Uh, you know, it's always uh, it's always great when you put the music onto a picture. I mean, um, it's it it should never be taken lightly because it is that which enters the audience through a mechanism that's very intuitively based. Mm-hmm. And so, when sounds get into people's heads, it it makes them see through that filter. And so if you want them to understand something as terror, but with a comic edge, you can do it with the way you tweak, tweak the sound. If you want it to be straight terror, you know, you, you don't, you know, maybe you stay in the minor key and you keep the dissonance and you avoid anything that's, that has, that's clean, a clean sound. And, um, the, the, and a lot of that music just set the tone everywhere you look. So it, it was a very important factor. And you don't get to put it on usually until the later end of things. You can't really prescribe it much at the front end. You really need to see the pictures to know what you're dealing with. So it's a, a strange uh, part of the process because you often rushed at the end to try to get this stuff done and da-da-da, and how many times can you go over it? You don't like the sound. You have to send it back. and. You know, on a bigger budget things, they have the time to play around with this. On a lower budget things, you really kind of have to, uh, 
you get a couple shots and then you got to go forward. Plus, back in the day, working with this stuff was not anywhere near as easy as it is now. I mean, the new technologies have made this it's ridiculous. You know, I sit here, I, I, I write three, 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 uh, you know, three songs worth of material here. I send it over to you, and an hour later, you have it. You take two minutes. You go over it, you come back to me. I mean, we go back and forth six times, and the yeah. time it would take me to have done, uh, take me a week to do that back in the day. Yeah. So it was a different, uh, you know, game there. You know, you give somebody the material, you don't hear it for five days. You know? So now it's all very, very uh, malleable and, and easier. And you know, the success... Go ahead. Hmm? I was going to say the success of, of... You mentioned the piece... Uh, when Mars comes down out of the tree and is up in the tree. I I think if I had to get one scene that, that almost every fan who saw it as a young person, the thing that stuck with them almost more than any other scene is the scene of Mars in the tree. And I guess the, the tones and music of that scene, when he creeps down out of the tree, that's the one they say stayed with them their whole lives. I mean, so much so, as kids would tell me, they still would look up into the trees when they went out into the woods because of that. So that was a very successful blend of both the visual and, and the wonderful scoring at that point. Well, before we go into the remake talk, um, Gary surprised me. Um, I've seen the movie. I had to actually still have the VHS yet, believe it or not. I saw it a long time ago, and I rewatched it. You know, it's a 2006 you know, three-year edition, whatever it is. And I reviewed it, and, Paul, and Gary's seen it. And I was quite surprised that Gary sent me an email saying, hey, thanks a lot for the review. Because, you know, normally when podcasters review 80s movies, you hardly ever, ever get feedback from a writer, let alone an actor, from that film. So I was totally blown away. And what was so ironic is me and Jeff were talking about doing a podcast together, something different. And lo and lo and behold, Gary calls me. Okay, our first interview for our show. And I couldn't have picked two better guys to do a podcast with. So I want to thank you guys now before I forget, well, which I won't forget. Thanks for coming on. But the <laughs> thank stories, you, man. No problem. The stories are amazing. And, uh, Jeff, let me ask you a question. What is your experience so far as far as doing a podcast like this? Was uh, it it, it's, except for my co-host, it's been great. <laughs> <laughs> Eat shit, Freeman. <laughs> I told you. I told you. I'm the Costello to your rabbit. But, um, uh, but, but I did have one more question before we. No, no, we're not ending. I just want to. Um, uh, just real quick, uh, Gary. Let me take you back to 1982. Just real quick, um, because I tried to make this point a little earlier. You you had all these other movies coming out, or had just come out recently. You know, around the time yours had. Did and it really was the early '80s, late '70s, was really an explosion of the the slasher type film. And did this help you guys get noticed easier, or were just, or did it, or did you get kind of, you know, did you feel you got lost in the in the flood of films, or were distributors just like hungry for them at that point? Well, here's what happened. Uh, this is the this is the reality of what went down in that picture in that period. I mean. There were all kinds of horror films being made, a lot of them by independent studios, Compass International, run by uh, Erwin Leblanc, um, and uh, a couple others whose names I can't recall, maybe Seven Arts, you know, and some of these, uh, you know, maybe uh, Corman back in those days. And they were all re releasing through some kind of uh, 
block of distributors, sub-distributors around the country. The, you know, the distribution, the film distribution network of the country had been basically put in place through the majors coming out of the 30s and 40s and into the 50s and 60s. And there was a whole business full of distributors and sub-distributors and sub-subs in order to bicycle all these prints around the country all the time to handle the regular movies that were going out. Out of that group came these independent companies like Compass and Corman and whatever, and they started taking advantage of that to make their own independent pictures and get them released independently. There was no DVD, there was no VHS there, there was no TV even up to a certain point. TV started to chop into that into the 60s and 70s, and by the time you got into the late 70s, it had made a dent in, in theaters and changed the way theaters were not doing as well. Uh, they you know they had cinema vision and this vision and that vision all to try to come back against television and make themselves look different. And they were very um, open and uh, you know they, they they were not not doing great. So when we what happened was in when Paramount picked up Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, well, first before that before that um, Halloween with Compass International went out and did $60 million worth of business with a $600,000 film. That was the Irwin Yablon thing, the Halloween one, the first one, which is a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Um, and uh, that basically suddenly said to the majors, gee, there's a market out here. And Paramount was the first one to jump on it, and it grabbed the $600,000 Friday the 13th, number one, put that out and they did 60 million plus in business all of a sudden every major studio was caught with nothing on the shelves for horror and they all wanted in you know how they are sheep like uh -huh. that they everybody wanted to make make out on this new market that was suddenly discovered so for a while they were picking up anything with a knife and a piece of blood in it so anybody that made a horror film went to Hollywood and they were immediately bought as soon as they got there. So if you went out with 300 grand, 400 grand, 500 grand, whatever you had, made a movie fast enough and got out there, you were getting paid back immediately, a million dollars, a million five, and everybody was rolling in dough and thrilled about it in the independent world. When we went out to make Mad Men, when I looked at the marketplace and I was checking around to see what our competition was and blah, 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 uh, this is like 19... You know, like late 1980, you know, um, I start to see that there may be 15 pictures in production that fit the bill, you know, that are planning to go to the American film market. Okay, when we get to the American film market, like later, uh, like uh, in February, or whatever the hell it was, um, there's 135 pictures there. And at this point, what's happened is while we're in the process of making Mad Men, as you well know, every week, two or three horror films were being released, from Terror Train to Basket Case to uh, Mother's night. Day to Friday, the, uh, April Fool's Day. Uh, Friday the 13th, two is now coming out, Halloween too. So basically what happened was the market, from the point where we discovered the opportunity to jump in on it, and it was red hot, saturated itself. By the time we got to Hollywood, all the majors now had at least three to five of these pictures sitting in their queue, ready to release whenever necessary. So the amount of advance money that was being offered suddenly dipped. 
and you couldn't, well, by the time we got there, my friend Armand Mastriani did, uh, he went to school with me at Richmond College. He did He Knows You're Alone, which, by the way, Tom Hanks has his first movie role in there somewhere. Right. Um, they made that for $600,000. They got to L.A., MGM bought it for a million, too. So they doubled their money immediately. And 600 grand in those days? Oh, yeah. That, that sounded low back then. I want you to know, I just made Girl on the Train for under 450. So, no, it only sounds low to people that don't aren't familiar with, you know, the history of film. Uh, and I'll give you a great example. Uh, Network, which had a bevy of, of, you know, you could say slightly fading and hot top stars in it, at the time was made for a budget for a little over $3 million in the mid-70s. So $3 million to make Network? Come on. Yeah, and well, and look at the look at the look at the director, and look at the star list. Yeah, De Niro, the writer. Yeah, Ayevsky. Yeah, that's a lot of money back then. What's that? That was an awful lot of money back then. Yeah, 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 it was, but it was also Hollywood style filmmaking, fully unionized in the middle of, of New course. York. You know, um, it's it's. You know, you never know where these things are going to go. You get the paranormals that get made for thirty grand and hit a vein, and all of a sudden they're doing eight hundred million dollars of gross. Uh, right. They're truly a rarity. Um, and you go out and you do, you know, you do what you got to do. But um, you know, we got the money for Madman because of the, the same thing that kind of oversaturated the market for us. Also, was the very same thing that got us the money. So every sword has two edges, in the sense that to, to pitch the picture, Joey and I basically said, look, we have no track record. We have nothing we can show. We don't have any stars to put in here, which is the traditional way that everybody sells stuff. The only thing we have is that horror is the star, and horror is a box office hit right now. So we went and took every week the New York Times, Newsweek, Time Magazine, every magazine had a little feature article about how low-budget horror films were making big headway at the box office. So we took all of those articles and compiled them into our pitch. And when I went to see investors, basically it was, look, look, it's not me and this guy next to you here telling you that this is a successful, this is, has tremendous success potential. This is the rest of the world telling you. Look, ask the New York Times, ask Newsweek, ask Time Magazine, look at the Wall Street Journal. They're talking about, here's the numbers, here's what's going on. And so that helped us to sell the movie. You know, the fact wow. that there was so much horror and it was doing so much business. And as I said, by the same token, when we got to the market, there was so much horror and so much business that it limited the amount of advance we were able to get. We still got something, but we didn't get the big buyout that we were hoping we would get to the investors right. and get everybody out. So it was that kind of a thing. But we ended up getting our investor out pretty well by the time all was said and done. But it was just the nature of the beast, you know. Uh, it was a, a lot of horror films were coming out. A lot of guys never got anything distributed in the end. Came to a certain point, and after about 1983, 84, the slasher and horror genre was not releasing in the same manner, and it was quiet for a while until some other kind of specialty things started to pop up here and there, and you would get the uh, Texas Chainsaw would ch come out or something like that, that which would re reinvigorate it again. You know, the truth of the matter is, in the, as a genre, and now that we have the Internet cataloging it all for the last bunch of years, we can see that there's a lot of different uh, things inside of the horror genre. I mean, slasher is one. 
and there's other kinds of horror that people like. I mean, now you got the new, uh, you know, uh, the new style with uh, what is it? The uh, the the one with uh, with the caterpillar. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, good lord! The human centipede. Human centipede. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got human centipede. That's a new style of of, of horror. Shit. Um, you, you, you know, and then you had, uh, you know, now the new run on zombies is back, uh, and, and you're getting all of that kind of stuff. Vampires never seem to go away. So there's all these different tributaries inside the big ocean of, of, the, of the genre now, and there's different people that love different things. I mean, and, uh, and, it, and they wax and wane. All of a sudden, you know, you get the screen series where you get a, a sort of a comic horror going there, and that's working enough of that and then another thing comes comes back you know the paranormals and those things start to come in so slasher is on you know we we're, we're going to come in and out you know i mean there there's going to be a period where new slasher you know new slasher picture done right is going to also hit the hit the mark at the, at the box office and, and mm. things go you know get picked up again so we, you know we're in that world and madman is an icon of fright that uh, and that's why i want to do the remake is because I believe that he, in the pantheon of horror genre characters, and the, the, the Michael Myers and the and the you know and the various other guys, that, that there's a place for Mars in there, and it should be a little bit higher up on that list now. We could we could reinvigorate his his uh, his character around the world, and maybe that's a good lead into our next to the discussions about the remake. <laughs> the same place. It's the same general idea. I mean, as as we had always felt. I mean, Madman is a, uh, um, as we were saying earlier in the conversation, uh, the Madman Mars is a quintessential uh, icon of fright of the ages. It's the kind of thing that is, you know, whereas something like we were talking about, uh, American Psycho makes sense to a, a, an urban audience here in the United States. I don't know what it'll mean to people in Sri Lanka or around the world in other marketplaces that are more rural, you know. But Madman is more of your woods, you know, kind of fear, fright, fear of the dark, who's going to come and get you from there. And I think that works everywhere around the world, and, and it's around for all time. So in that respect, we're going to maintain the same idea, that he's a long-term uh, you know, monster that's more about your personal interferes of the dark and what you don't, and the unknown, and also about the question of whether or not how far you let your imagination and your belief system go in believing tales of legends and things that you're told, you know, and whether or not there's a, re a reason to, re to, to believe in them. You know, things, things become legends in a given area about the monster in the woods or the, or, the, or the creature that will come out of the cave because something has happened at some point or another to, that's real. Somebody's been killed, some head has rolled, some, something's gone down, and it's happened enough that it gets passed around enough that it creates some legend around it. I mean, you know... Back in the day, this took a little while to, to, to get these things happen, you know, out there into the world to become legend and stick. These days, all you need is a Twitter feed, and it's done in, a, in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's the same essential human quality that makes it happen. Somebody makes a statement, somebody else hears it and, and agrees or disagrees or comments on it. That passes on to another person, another person, and next thing you know, you've got a discussion and. 
you know, and a legend that's either believed by some or not believed by others, but there is something to discuss. And Madman fits into that. And I think that uh, Jason and Freddie and, and Michael have had the stage for a long time. I mean, they've certainly have played out, you know, enough remakes to uh, serve them. And I think Madman, which has never had that well, that remake yet, is certainly deserving of a remake and the ability or reimagining, depending on how you want to think of it. And bring it out to a new audience. You know, a lot of a lot of our audience now from my Facebook page, I, I know, you know, they're not the older guys. I mean, people, Madman came out in 82. So a guy that was like, uh, you know, between 12 and 16 then is now in his 40s or more. And so, you know, those were the kids like we were laughing about before who might sneak away the, the DVD, the VHS while the parents were gone or somebody's older brother or the babysitter was watching. In some cases, people tell me their parents were watching it and they would let them watch it or they would sneak it after they left. But those guys are in their 40s and, and up. There's still a whole new young crowd which is discovering the original Mad Men that loved the 80s yeah. flashes. And there's a whole bunch of, of young kids that are going to see you know, that are populating these new these new horror pictures and these new paranormals and all those things that are in that marketplace that will come out for a new version of Batman if, if we get to put it out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly theatrical is our goal, uh, and I'm having, uh, I've had excellent talks with Anchor Bay, who nice. had released the original DVD, was released by Anchor Bay in 2000. And uh, Kevin Kasha over there, who's the head of acqui uh, acquisitions and production in Anchor Bay, has told me he's ready to make the remake with me. And Excellent. so um, I've been talking with him and trying to get that moving forward. Uh, and a little bit of a detour here doing The Girl on the Train, which took up uh, most of my life for the last bunch of months. But that's, uh, that's wrapping up now and should uh, ease off as I work my way back into uh, more efforts on that. And to that end, I'm looking at trying to... Um, you know, uh, bring in, uh, we have been talking with some major uh, WWE and TNA wrestlers as a possibility to step in to do Mad Men. And that's, that's one thing. In terms of just simply the marketplace, we're looking for a way to give us some distinctions there. Uh, and cast helps. It helps me to get the deal going with the distributors. And it just helps in general. Uh, where, you know, because if you notice these days, they're making a lot of these pictures and there are recognizable faces in them. It's, it's, it's passing the place where, uh, you can't have anybody that's, you know, everybody can be unknown. Uh, the distributors in the foreign market has changed tremendously. I mean, it used to be a lot easier to sell things to the foreign markets. Now they want like A-list stars in half the stuff. Right. So you have to have something to put on the table besides just simply good horror, good story, good background, good effects, uh, something in the marquee level for cast to help them along the line. So in, to that effect, somebody from that zone, which would bring us, you know, already a, 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 an audience that we probably already have, which are people who go to, you know, who attend wrestling and like uh, UFC and that kind of stuff, will probably also horror fans. So it'll, it'll just, you know, give us direct access to that audience on top of everything else. And I'm talking to a pretty major casting director in New York that I just worked with to get on board with me to help me get some uh, good young people, to, you know, with some talent that can play um, in the roles 
you know, of the camp, of the camp counselors and campers themselves. Um, and, you know, that could come from some, some of the main TV shows that are out there right now. Um, uh, Supernatural has some people that we could go for, some of the kids from Gossip Girl, I mean, some of the other people that are doing daytime TV or night, you know, network TV where you can, uh, there are people that uh, the audience recognizes and they're good actors and they want to do stuff. So right. that's another area that we're, we're looking at at the same time. Now, is Paul uh, going to have a cameo? Hmm? Is Paul going to have a cameo in it? We're going to figure out a place for that. We have a couple <laughs> of places that works. That well, you remember in the original, the uh, older guy at the campfire that was telling the story. There you go, Paul. Max. Well, we talked about that at one point, but uh, yeah, the main, you know, I should show up somewhere in the film, I yeah. think. Like, yeah. yeah. You have to. Yeah, that, well, no, that, that, let's just use the original cast. The original what? Use the original cast for the remake. The original cast? Yeah. Well, first of all, finding them is one thing. Forty-year-old Jeff, you jackass. If you watch the DVD, the feature uh, on there, I tracked down as many of them as I could find when we were doing it. And one of them is, of course, the guy who played Max, who uh, is now eighty-five years old. You know, and I was barely—I got a really nice interview with him, but I—I fear it may have been his last. I just. You know, he was pretty old and, and not, not doing so well, but he granted me the interview, and I went out to Jersey to his house and got it got it with him. But, um, you know, you know, Max is a very tricky character because that, um, you know, the kind of people who could play that character, I mean, look, I just worked with Stephen Lang. I mean, if I could get Stephen Lang to do that, it would be a miracle. I mean, uh, Stephen Lang, who was the C- Colonel Quaritch in Avatar. Um, you know, it's the older, venerable uh, camp director, you know, uh, anybody between, you know, 45 and 65. Uh, and it doesn't hurt, you know, it could be a Lance Hendricks guy. It could be um, Bruce Campbell could possibly do it, you know. But those are the things these days that you sort of need to help you to present uh, to the marketplace because uh, the, the distributors are insistent upon something that they can hang their hat on. And, and look, it's not just, they're, they're all great personalities for these roles. I mean, they all will bring something wonderful to the Max character. Uh, the guy gets to tell a great campfire tale, and he has some other possibilities that are there in that um, Joey and I, before he passed, had written a sequel to Madman, which was called Hunt the Madman, which was all about, after all was said and done, the survivor you know, or, or that the survivors that were left over are are, are uh, reached out to by younger brothers and sisters of, of some of the dead people who have been tracking odd murders. Uh, on, you know, now they're using all kinds of fancy, you know, uh, GPS stuff and the Internet and all that stuff, and they've been tracking these weird murders that have the stamp of Madman's profile on them. And they, they're showing how it's worked its way from where the original story took place. It's working its way out into the deeper woods and into another part of the country. So they come upon our surviving heroes and talk them into going out to hunt the man and with them so that they could track them down and, and, and avenge the deaths of their, their relatives and friends. So there's a whole other movie there. And in that, the Max character would, prom- would play prominently as being part of that it's sort of a combination there of action, adventure, and horror. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I, that's just my weird sense of humor when I made that that statement. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I, I do yeah. realize your, your original Betsy is sixty something years old right now, and because uh, I looked her up on IMDb and is a documentary filmmaker apparently. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, well, Betsy. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I, I don't have to reprise. A, a pretty good doc filmmaker director. She's got a, a number of interesting pictures out there. Uh, she's also not being particularly um, helpful to us in granting many interviews or anything. She sort of says she has a different career now and is trying not to mix the two. So I yeah, it might be uh, tougher to get her to do that that, that uh, hot tub scene again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think once is enough for her and us. So uh, that was... Uh, <laughs> yeah. I hear you. That's a good one. But, you know, the, the new Madman would be updated in the sense of, uh, you know, same kind of cast, you know, a little bit of a different twist to certain things, but essentially updated with the, the kind of language, the kind of uh, technology that would be there. Cell phones are involved, regular stuff's involved. And, no signal. Um, no. What's that? No signal. <laughs> Most yeah, of the horror, horror film movies now... Oh no! Signal my phone. No. Yeah, you know we really I, we had to make a choice when we put that in, and, and I, I, my feeling was either it works all the time or it doesn't work at all. Right. I, I you know that's that's the approach to it, and I, I just felt it would let it let it work and use it for what it is, and uh, wherever it could work, it would work. You know, and, and 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 even with that, there's certain frustrations because you know. You call, you go to the message for some reason or another, or you call and and and, and you know you, somebody just doesn't pick up in time, or you know there's lots of other ways to use it. Or you, you lost the charger, yeah. and there's always batteries, and there's always yeah. that kind of, you know, so all that, or people leaving their phone behind and it's not with them when you call them. Um, there's plenty of ways to play that. Or madman's a phone thief. You know, we try to, it's, like I say, adhere to the basic underlying idea that this is a grand legend of, of historic proportion that people are, you know, either if they diss it, they find out why they shouldn't have. And and, and, it, and eventually everybody ends up with a healthy respect for the fact that, well, whether you believe it or not, there's something going down here. There are dead people all around. Right. And uh, so that that's, you know, the general idea. And... Um, you know, and it still will take place in a, in a, in a summer camp, a little slightly different. It may not be the camp or just the children that we listed in the original. It may just be the end of a regular, you know, a regular camping experience and those who are left uh, in that final night on the, the CI team, the counselor and staff, and, the, you know, the main folks map it up. And, uh, you know, we threw some twists and turns in there. There's a new character or two that uh, will, will create some fun and some excitement. And... Um, you know, and, and but there's also the other same thing that we're going to retain is the idea. You know, we never, Joey and I, would never were into like gratuitousness of just showing the blood for the blood's sake or all that. Everything was always attached to story and development and, and what where things were going. So you know, you get to see stuff, but it's, it's not about lingering and it's not about overdoing it. It's about just using it for the, the position that it deserves, either as a shocker moment or as a conclusion to something that you've been trying to, you know, wonder, well, what happened there? But, but never just to just sit there and linger on blood and guts. We never, we always felt it was better to keep Madman more under wraps, not see him too much, not get too familiar with his face, 
you know, until it was Shulman parts until we got to a later down the line and we could reveal him more. And I think that it's not just us, that's traditional to a lot of, uh, you know, successful horror pictures and things along those lines. So we're going to be following that, that routine. And if all goes well, you know, I'll be shooting by late summer somewhere and get this thing in, into the theaters by 2013. Excellent. That's the hope and dream. All right, well... To, to plug a little bit, okay? Yep. For right away. of your audience that wants to, you know, know more and track us and, and be involved, you know, and have direct stuff, or, you know, buy the DVD, the 30-year anniversary DVD directly, or get a T-shirt. I even have some classic, still in the shrink wrap, very rare DVDs from Anchor Bay that are uh, available. They're not cheap, but they're there. They're not, not many people have them. But they can, you know, become, I'd love to have them become just, whether they buy anything or not, that's not a big deal. Uh, join our, you know, like us on our Facebook page at uh, Madman Mars Movie on Facebook. Yep. Uh, it's very simple. It's just Madman Mars Movie. And uh, that's Mars with a Z. And uh, they can then uh, be in touch. You know, as you can see, I'm happy to answer questions. Anything I can answer, I pass over to Paul and let him answer. And uh, so the more people we can get, you know, on board, the the better it is. It always is, you know, fun. And I got we've got fans. Literally, just a fan just reached me from Germany, uh, asking me for a T-shirt and a DVD. I've shipped to Australia. I've shipped uh, all over the United States. So, you know, I'm happy to accommodate people, and I'm also happy to dialogue with them when they when they reach us on Facebook. And, and I will make I make personal appearances at birthday parties. Excellent. <laughs> uh, only children's parties, I hope. <laughs> yes, he does face painting. He does it with a knife, though. It's very unusual. It's uh, a very unusual thing. And getting a cake big enough for me to jump out of is always difficult, but it, 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 it that's works. It's fun. There's also, uh, they can follow on Twitter at TheMadmanMars, twitter.com slash TheMadmanMars, which is another way uh, of reaching us. And, uh, you know, once again, always happy to talk with fans and see what they have to say. A lot of the fans, the first thing I ask them when they join up on Facebook is, what was your first experience seeing Man Man? When did you see it? Where did you see it? Who did you see it with? And I'll tell you, I've gotten, I've got a whole list of them that I just keep compiling of everybody's first time, and it's all pretty interesting when you hear people do it. Uh, so. Well, considering I just liked the page on Facebook right now, I can't wait till you ask me so that my response can be published on Facebook. My, my first impression of Madman Mars was interviewing a couple of lunatics that were associated with making it. <laughs> oh, there, you are. Yes. there you go. Post it on your timeline. Okay. There you go. All right, good. And the more the, the more the merrier there. So that sounds very good. So uh, yeah, any other questions you guys can just uh, you know always email me and I can be help, help, helpful and uh, to answer that. Excellent. Okay. Well. Well, I, I hope you got enough. Oh you yeah. <laughs> you got yeah. enough to go with. Okay. Oh yeah, now we're you know, you have the year anniversary DVD, there's lots more stories and you know, repeats of what some of the things we told you, but more stories in the feature that we did on there, thirty years of madman. Uh, there's a whole lot of different stories and images and all kinds of stuff. Save one for me. You got Funny. listen, I wanna say if you guys if you want me to lay down a little something over the phone for your show, I'll do it. Yep. Do you do you wish to call me back so we could do it that yeah. way? Yeah, I can do it that way. Okay. That'd be good. I mean, I mean give, me, give me five minutes to do a little something, and yep. then I'd be available. All right. Excellent, well, Paul. 
Well, before you guys go, I want to give you guys a special thanks for coming on the show. Gary, I appreciate the the feedback, the comeback, the phone call last week. It made my day. Um, we talked about age earlier. I'm the youngest of the four here. Not by yeah, much. Yeah. I, ain't, I ain't no 20-year-old. I mean, I'll be 44 this year, so I was 14 in 1982 when that was released so mm. I was at the age group perfect age group for that film so I, you know, it's a deepest gratitude and thanks for you guys coming on you're very hey, welcome thank, thank you. you Yep. thanks a lot guys very uh, good we'll talk soon thanks yep. so much yep. alright man be good take yep. care wait take let, care. Me, let me leave you with this for the fans hold on a little growl here we go ready <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> Thank you very much. Take care, guys. Take care. Be good. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Have a great one, guys. Yep. Bye. Bye. Bye.